Noah's Ark with an emphatic affirmation that what we are reading here is historical fact. And from this true history, we derive very, very important warnings. Besides, let's think about it for a moment. Is it really too hard for God to flood the entire earth? If all the world is a speck of dust, that's all it is for God. It's not hard for him to do it. And Jesus believed it. I believe it with all my heart. And I want us to take these warnings to heart over the next four weeks. The warnings, but also the the wonderful affirmations of God's grace and blessing and mercy. Okay. Genesis 1 teaches us that God made the world. He flooded the dark chaos with light. He separated the waters above from the waters below. He separated the waters from the dry land. He filled the land with abundant and teeming life. That's Genesis 1. In Genesis 2, we read about God initiating marriage, the institution of marriage. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve, the first human beings, rebelling against God and coming under God's curse. What do we then see in Genesis chapter 4 and 5? Now, do you remember what God said to the serpent? God said, um, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. In other words, uh, the line, the offspring of the woman, her descendants would crush the line and the offspring of the serpent and his descendants. That's Genesis 3.15. And then in Genesis 4, what do we read? We read an account of the line of who? It's the line of the serpent, isn't it? Because we read about uh, Lamech, who was the first bigamist, and he was a murderer, and he bragged about his murders. We read about before that, Cain murdering his brother Abel. So Genesis 4 is a list of nine generations, and this is the seed of the serpent. This is the seed of, of the godless, those who have turned their back on God. That's, that's Genesis 4. What's Genesis 5? It's the seed of the woman. It's the line of Seth. This is the godly line that God promised in Genesis 3.15. So we do need to be clear about how Genesis is structured, and I want you to be clear that in Genesis 3.15, two distinct lines are prophesied, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. Genesis 4 shows us the seed of the serpent. Genesis 5, the seed of the woman, the, the godly seed from Seth through to Noah. And when we look at the the various ages, particularly in Genesis 5, we look at the ages of the people in that line of Seth, we see that Adam could have described what happened in the Garden of Eden and the fall of man and the initial curse of man. Adam could have described that to Noah's father. So we see as we look at the ages of those in Genesis, we see that Adam himself could have spoken 
to Noah's father. We don't know whether he did, but it's certainly possible that what happened in the Garden of Eden was handed down firsthand to Noah's father. Okay, so I hope now we have a a picture of what has been happening so far in the book of Genesis and that this will help make sense of what on the face of it is a quite a mysterious passage. Genesis 6 verses 1 to 8. So let's let's look at that together. Genesis 6 1 to 8. Where we read that when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them that they chose. Now, who are these sons of God and who are these daughters of men that look so attractive to the sons of God and they married whomever they wanted to? Who are these two groups? Well, I hope, I hope you've got a clue already from what Genesis has been doing. It's been describing these two lines, these two seeds, these, these two generations, the, the seed of the serpent, the seed of the woman. The, the seed of the godless, in other words, and those of the godly. Now, Jewish interpreters tended to think of the sons of God as angels, as angelic beings. And that what was going on here is that the the angels of heaven were looking down on earth and seeing how gorgeous uh, human women were and they were coming down and and taking them in marriage and procreating with them. That's That's a kind of classic Jewish interpretation of Genesis chapter 6. But Jesus himself tells us that the angels uh, neither marry nor are given in marriage. He he says that explicitly in Mark chapter 12, verse 25. He says that when the dead rise, they they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So angels don't marry, angels don't procreate. They certainly don't procreate with human beings. And so that can't be what... Moses is describing in Genesis chapter 6. It's not a description of angels coming down and procreating with human beings. So who are these sons of God and who are these daughters of men and why was this such a problem that the two were intermarrying and procreating? Well, I hope we can see from the way Genesis is structured that the sons of God refers to that godly line the line of the woman, the, the, the seed of the woman, described in Genesis 3.15, and that the daughters of men is a way of describing that godless line, the seed of the serpent. And it's the male side of the godly line that is specified because it's the males who initiate marriage, according to Genesis chapter 2. It's a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's why it's the sons of God that are emphasised in this passage. They are the ones who take the initiative in marriage. And so I hope that this is starting to become a little more clear. What's going on here? The sons of God, 
That is, that the seed of the woman, that the godly line described in Genesis chapter 5, looked and saw that the daughters of men, the seed of the serpent, the godless line described in Genesis chapter 4, and the sons of God looked on the daughters of men and saw that they were beautiful in their eyes, and they married any of them that they chose. And some of you might even hear echoes in that verse of Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good. It's the same two words, saw, good, beautiful, same words, that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. She took some and ate it. The big idea here, brothers and sisters, is that the woman's seed, the godly ones, those from Genesis chapter 5, from the line of Seth, those who were meant to be God's people, were choosing to marry those from the serpent seed, the godless line described in Genesis chapter 4. The godly line were choosing to marry the godless line. That's fundamentally what is going on there in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And this was upsetting to God, this angered God. And the reason is this, that God's priority with marriage is that his people will produce godly offspring. And God said that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Has not the Lord made the married couple one? And why? Why one? because he was seeking godly offspring. This was God's priority in marriage. That's why in Genesis chapter 24, you have an extremely detailed account of Abraham sending his serpent, his, not his serpent, his servant, his servant to find a, a wife for Isaac. And it's a very long account, it's a very detailed account, and Abraham is so emphatic, isn't he? He's so emphatic that Isaac not marry one of the, the, the Canaanite women in the area, but that he only marries someone from, from the godly line, from the, 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 this godly covenant family that the God has established. And in Deuteronomy 7, God gave his people this commandment, do not intermarry with the Canaanites, do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Do you see how these themes are all fitting together? That's why God was, was angry that the sons of God, those who were part of the covenant line, those who were meant to be having their eyes fixed on God, were turning away from that and were beginning to marry the, the daughters of men, those who didn't care about God, the godless, 
those who had no interest in God's way, no, those who had no interest in raising godly children who would know and love God. In 2 Corinthians 6, the Apostle Paul says to Christians, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 39, that if a believer's husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes but he must belong to the Lord. That's why the behaviour of the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 was a serious sin. It was not important to them anymore that they form the kind of marriage where the children would be raised to know and to love God. And that proved that they didn't love God. They didn't care about the ways of God. The reason the sons of God were happy to marry the daughters of men was because they no longer cared about God, no longer cared about his ways, no longer cared about uh, how their children would be raised, whether they would be raised to know and to love God. So their behaviour was at heart a rejection of God. What's God's response to this? Look there at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is flesh. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. And you might think, 120 years, well, that's a long time, isn't it? Well, human beings were not made to die. We were not made to die at all. Now, how long were the, the, the godly line living? The seed of the woman, Genesis 5, how long were they living up until this point? Look at the ages of the people who died in Genesis chapter 5, the line of the woman, Usually they're in the 900s, right? They're living close to a thousand years. And we might think, well, that's, that's extraordinary. But that was God's judgment on him. We, we were created to live forever. A thousand years is nothing. God had already slashed human life to a thousand years and now, seeing the sons of God who were supposed to be pursuing God and his ways and raising godly children, and seeing how their hearts had turned against God and they were marrying the daughters of men, not caring about how their kids would be raised and so on. And he slashes their life even further, now to a maximum of 120 years. And it's very interesting to me that the oldest person alive in the world today, her name is Kana Tanaka, she's Japanese. She's 116 and 137 days old today. She's nearly at that 120, isn't she? Nearly. Not many people 
very, very few people. I think we're hearing about lots of people now getting to 100, but 110, very, very few become what they call super centenarians. And uh, no one, as far as we know, is getting to that, that 120. Cutting human life to a mere 120 years was God's severe judgment on the godless behaviour, the rejection of God by these sons of men. 120 years was his severe judgment, but it was also a reprieve. Let's not forget that, that God had every right to snuff them out in a moment, and yet he gave them life. He gave them a few more years. He gave them a reprieve. He gave them time to repent. He gave them time to turn from their godless behaviour and to turn back to him. And if you are here this morning and you've got life in you, it's not because we deserve it. It's because God is merciful with us and he gives us time. And he calls us to repent and he calls us back to himself and he blesses us with a time of grace and reprieve. The question is, will you take hold of that reprieve or will you squander it and die unrepentant? My prayer is that every one of us will make use of that, that reprieve, loving gracious reprieve that God gives to each of us. While there is life, there is time and hope of repenting and turning to the living God. Now, in, Genesis, in, in verse 4, Genesis 6, verse 4, Moses describes, and I, the reason I'm saying Moses is because Moses wrote Genesis. That's why I'm talking about Moses as the author, in case you're wondering why why is Moses coming into this all of a sudden? Well, he's the, he's the author of this, right? And he describes the strange offspring of these marriages between the sons of God and the daughters of men. How does he describe their offspring? Well, he calls them the Nephilim. And those of us who love the Lord of the Rings, those sorts of things, oh, this, this, sounds, this sounds great. What's this all about? Well, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and had children by them. They were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Nephilim, who on earth are they? The Hebrew verb phala means to fall you put the N sound on the front, it gives it a passive sense. The Nephilim, according to the, the, the basic meaning of the word, are simply fallen ones. These are the fallen ones. And the Nephilim, this name reoccurs in Numbers 13. The Nephilim, they are described as the Anakites who were a Canaanite tribe. They were Canaanites. 
The point is that when the sons of God married the daughters of men, who were their offspring? Now you might think that if the sons of God married the daughters of men, that there's every chance that 50% of them, right, would be sons of God, right? Surely that's the way the, the chips are going to fall. If the godly married the ungodly, then surely at least 50%, come on, are going to be godly. But Moses said, when the sons of God married the daughters of men, what was the fruit of that? All of them were fallen. All of them became Canaanites. And the Canaanites were idol worshippers. They worshipped Baal. They worshipped Ashtoreth. They worshipped Moloch. And if you worshipped Moloch, you sacrificed your own children. It's disgusting and appalling. And this is the big lesson here from Genesis 6. When the sons of God marry the daughters of men, the fruit is not half sons of God, half daughters of men. They are all fallen. They are all Canaanites. Now, before the days of cheap and easy divorce, there was Ratsack. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Ratsack. It's rat poison. And uh, too many people, too many wives were caught putting bits of Ratsack in, the, in their husband's tea back in the day. And if you put just a little bit in, you couldn't really taste it, apparently, so I'm told. This is... Uh, now, now here's something interesting. You think if you put a little bit of rat sack, rat poison, in a nice cup of tea, a nice big cup of tea, that the nice big cup of tea might, you know, obliterate the effects of the poison. Yeah. Doesn't work that way, does it? A little bit of poison in a nice big cup of tea poisons the whole tea. And lots of nasty husbands... Found that out the hard way. <laughs> Don't get any ideas, right? <laughs> it's illegal. Always has been. <laughs> the godly line was poisoned. You, you, they might have thought that we can bring the godless in and they will be absorbed, and they will become godly too. It just didn't happen that way. They all became Canaanites. These people, the Nephilim, they were mighty apparently. They were men of renown. They had great names, but they were not good. You can be mighty, and you can have a great name and still be wicked. And that was these men. And the Lord saw, verse 5, how great the wickedness of the human race had on the earth become and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. This is God's loving diagnosis of humanity then. And if you know your Bibles, you know that this diagnosis stands. It stands today. And please, 
I'm, I'm glad Raf said it's important to have our Bibles open because I, I just want you to look at verse 5 there. The Lord looked out across the world and what did he see? That every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. All the time. It is not saying that human beings are as wicked as they could possibly be and the grace of God restrains our evil and our wickedness. It is saying that even our best actions are poisoned with sin, selfishness and rebellion. Now, young people in particular, you've come through school, you're at university, and you are hearing every day that you are basically hydrocarbons, water, bit of electricity. That, that's who you are, basically, as a human. You're just a material being. Hydrocarbons and electricity. God didn't make you. You're the natural result of chance processes, chance and time, science. That's who you are, basically. But your behaviour is amazing. You're awesome, right? Are you hearing that all the time? You're, you're, you're advanced slime, lucky mud, but you're awesome. You know, you're, you're essentially, you're rubbish because you're just this mass of carbon, hydrocarbons and all that. But, but you're amazing and everyone should applaud you. You should applaud yourself. But in your heart of hearts, you know that's not right, don't you? You know you're not worthless. You know you're not worthless. And you know that your behaviour isn't awesome. It's shabby. The Bible makes perfect sense of that. Because God hand-made you. And he breathed his breath of life into you. You are not rubbish. You are not just material stuff with a bit of electricity chucked in. God handmade you. He breathed his breath of life into you. To see you is to see an image and likeness of God, says the Bible. To see you is to see an image and likeness of God. But your soul is sick. You've made a little throne in your heart and you've crowned yourself king or queen. And that's why you don't like to obey God. That's why you always put yourself before others. The Bible says you are fundamentally priceless, but you're acting badly, you're thinking wrongly. And this grieves the God who made you. Look there at verse 6 and 7. We're coming near the end. So God is, is looking upon all of this. Have, have we got a picture? I hope we have a clear picture in our minds now of what's going on. The sons of God 
turn their hearts against God, marrying the daughters of men. Their children are Canaanites, godless Nephilim. God looks at our hearts, sees that our hearts are just so broken, so wrong, so flawed. And the Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. And so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. God looks today on this earth, his heart is filled with pain, and he is grieved for our sin, he's grieved for our rebellion, and he is a holy God, he's a just God, he must punish our sin, if he didn't, he wouldn't be God. A God who didn't hate sin would be a demon. God who wasn't holy would be a satanic being. He's holy and just and he hates sin, the passion. And his heart breaks. And he's grieved for the sin of humankind. And Genesis chapter 6 tells us that God is also merciful because in verse 8 he said, Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah, in Noah, was all humanity. We were in Noah. Did you know that Noah is your ancestor? <laughs> I, I, I hope you knew that and I hope most of you are saying, yes, I did know that, but thanks for reminding me. I'd... If you are alive and you're a human being today, you, you come from Noah. He is the common ancestor of every single one of us. And so when Noah found favour in God's eyes, and as we'll see, it's not because Noah was such a great chap. We'll see in Genesis 9 that he was as flawed as anyone. But he found favour, he found grace. And we found favour and grace because we were in him. We're from him. If God hadn't rescued Noah, we wouldn't be here. And so when you look at Noah and you see God's grace given to him, remember that it was grace given to you and favour given to you. And so we come to God with our sin and our hearts of rebellion, and he is gracious and merciful, and he has provided a way of salvation. And we're going to learn about that over the next three or four weeks as we look at this extraordinary ark that God designed for Noah and for us, because we were there in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, teaching us 
who we are, what we're like, and you tell us the truth about ourselves, and you do that in love. And I pray that we might, over the coming weeks, as we look at Genesis 6 to 9, that we might become even more clear about who we are as human beings and our sin, and what our sin deserves, and, and your grace and your love, your heart that, that, that breaks for the lost, and your provision of salvation. And I pray, Father, that, that each person here sitting today, like Noah, will come to rescue and to shelter in the salvation that you have graciously provided. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I invite our musicians back up, and we're going to conclude our service by singing This Life I Live.